Hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait a minute. Look, I, Jack, I think you've got much too much fill light. I mean, look, this is supposed to be a night scene. Yes, it's full of daylight. Quiet, quiet back there. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, oh, good evening. We wanted to take you behind the scenes for a moment to show you how we make our films. The friendly cooperation of many, many people is needed to bring you these stories. Prop men, makeup men, electricians, cameramen. All part of a team. I'm very proud of them, and they in turn... You know, I sometimes consider getting out of this business. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman, and uh, we made it to episode two. We are recording this episode the day after the first episode is dropped. Uh, the first episode is the pilot who tried to kill Thornhill. Um, so hopefully Brad won't uh, decide to cancel us after the pilot stage. I mean, he is the head of the Real Nerds Podcast Network. Um, if there is such a thing, I don't know if there is, there might be such a thing. Um, on that note though, I do want to thank Brad for getting the first show on the real nerds podcast feed and helping me set up the whole affair for access to the real nerds website. Um, that goes for the articles as well. Um, up right now are the first two articles, the introduction article and, uh, the first chapter, which is, uh, fanciful notions. Um, and both have a little bit of an interactive element. They've got clips that you can watch that kind of pertain to the content inside the article. So it's not just a bunch of words. Uh, and I also want to thank Real Nerds podcast host Ryan for being our inaugural gu- inaugural guest and for chatting up a storm about Grant and Hitchcock collaborations. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And um, we had a lot of fun discussing the possible ways that suspicion could have ended without it um, going right to the happy ending. <laughs> Uh, now that the first episode has been addressed, um, we can move on uh, to a different subject. We don't have to talk about charming Cary Grant anymore, guys, so relax. Um, on today's episode, we will be diving further into the Hitchcock of it all with a little chat about the meticulous nature of the man. Uh, Hitchcock, uh, known as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time and one of the most influential filmmakers of all time because of the details that he put into his film, amongst the other factors that are involved in this whole scenario. Uh, it's uh, he was able to bring attention to small details and big details as well uh, in a way that made them interesting. He had a technical acumen that was beyond anybody. He, he was a very uh, mechanical filmmaker in the sense that he knew what would make the right shot in the right scene for the right characters. Um, and uh, he had a lot of control over his camera and knew exactly how to tell the story. Basically, pre-production was his game. He would visualize the thing before he would even put it to screen. So by the time he got to set, the movie was already done in his head, and so it was just a matter of getting it on film. Now, arguably, one of the best examples of those and many more elements uh, is 1954's Rear Window, uh, a film that immediately uh comes to mind when it comes to hitchcock um it's a go-to for hitchcock beginners and a frequent return visit for enthusiastic hitchcock fans um to discuss rear window 
and the general meticulousness of Hitchcock, the Shamley silhouette is proud to bring on a truly talented individual. Really cool dude. Uh, he's the director of such documentaries as Nakio and Coming Home and a producer of the documentary Floating Horses, The Life of Casey Tibbs. But more importantly, he's a film fan and a Hitchcock fan. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Aaron Pendergast to the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah. Now, you've been on Real Nerds before, so you know how this works, right? I do, yes. Talking to the mic, say funny things, get lots of laughs, theoretically. Okay. I don't know who's listening and laughing at the same time. I, I've got bad news for you. I'm not funny, so. You're not? Fuck. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, by the way, this is an explicit podcast, guys, so if you're an old person wanting to hear about Hitchcock and don't like dirty words, this is not the podcast for you. Yes, please look away now. It's <laughs> not going to get any better. Oh, God, yeah. I, I don't even want to, you know, spoil what we're going to talk about involving the donkey in Rear Window. Yeah, there was totally a donkey show in that. In the, that there was. Movie. There was happening behind one of those curtains. Yeah, Hitchcock was a dirty, dirty boy. He was. <laughs> um, so uh, I sent out a questionnaire for people uh, that I wanted to get on the show. Uh, and you immediately jumped to two different films, but also the meticulous nature of Hitchcock. Um, the two films were Rear Window and what else? Uh, Strangers on a Train. Strangers on a Train, which is a big coup in uh, uh, Warner Brothers Library. Uh, that's one of the few Hitchcock films they have and have no problem bragging about it. <laughs> yeah, and that's honestly the uh, Strangers on a Train was what made me think about the meticulousness of his films. Uh, just in that, in the early stages of that movie when they're having lunch together mm-hmm. on the train after they've initially met and during that conversation just seeing the like light poles or uh, I guess rather telephone lines going by in the uh, light from the window on the train as they're as they're going. Little things like that that make a scene feel real mm-hmm. that anymore I feel like we take for granted or we sometimes don't even bother doing in a lot of films because we just assume we don't need it. But it really does create the atmosphere you need to make a scene work. So after noticing that, I started to look at all those other little details that he does. And then it just kind of became this theme throughout his work. And he does that not just within like the technical acumen. He also kind of does it within the uh, set dressing, the design, the story itself. Exactly, um, yeah. You know, like little eccentricities in the characters that kind of come out alive. Like, I mean, one of my favorite things about Strangers on a Train is that opening sequence where they're discussing how to commit each other's murders. Yeah. So it's it's one of the hallmarks of Hitchcock's career and arguably a, a film that I think also, amongst some other ones that have been discussed, gets talked about a lot. Absolutely, um, and I'm yeah. sure we will definitely discuss it on the show. Like, heck, I'll, maybe I'll bring you back and we'll just <laughs> we'll chat about Strangers on a Train too. Uh, details part two stay tuned for that um and uh what got you into hitchcock i mean it it seems to be a uh a rite of initiation for film fans and filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers at the very least Uh, weirdly enough i i want to say it was in middle school i don't remember what year exactly but somewhere in middle school Mm -hmm. um we had a class and we were discussing literature or really it's it's all i remember about it was that we watched the birds in this class that i had in middle school that's another mark for the birds being the first one (laughs) (laughs) and it really um it had always stood out to me uh and then additionally i've always been a fan of the classic twilight zone tv show Mm. which hitchcock did some episodes of that if i remember correctly well he did alfred hitchcock presents oh that's uh, right twilight zone was all serling that's right but but you know that's still the similar genre so it kind of gets you into that mold of what hitchcock does right and so excuse me i um yeah like being a fan of that kind of thing and then knowing that hitchcock did like the mystery and the thriller kind of content uh, was really what made me want to check out more of his work and then so again being 
you know, involved in film and going to film school and that he's somebody that gets talked about a lot. So you start to, you know, absorb more of his films and see where, I mean, almost everything that you see in a movie was probably done by Hitchcock before you saw it. And, (laughs) and then as you see more of his movies, you start to see that and you're like, Oh yeah, he was the first person to do that. It's funny that you bring up the birds and how, like, cause you watched it in a literary class. I think so. Yeah. I think we were, if I remember correctly, it was something like that. Do you remember if you had to read, uh, uh, De Mornay's, uh, short story prior to watching it? I don't think we did necessarily. Hmm. I don't recall. Again, this was so many years ago now. That right. I'm like, DeMornay's short story, it takes place in England, but it's still, it's a very much a moody kind of a piece. And the movie itself is very moody. It's not really a monster movie, but it is a monster movie. It's like, it, it is and it isn't, you know what I'm saying? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, and weirdly, I can picture the classroom that I was in in my middle school. Like, <laughs> I know exactly where it was. I just cannot remember any context about the actual class that we watched it in. I love that there's a middle school that was showing the birds. <laughs> <laughs> Mine showed 12 Angry Men. So well, well, there you go. I think yeah, we did watch uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or something as well at some point in yeah, middle we, school or high school. But We saw it in high school and then uh, uh, actually... Uh, I remember uh, convincing my teachers that it was worthwhile to show Good Night and Good Luck from 2005 uh, in pertainment to the discussion of the 50s. So I was able to get away with that somehow. Nice. Um, <laughs> I was influencing your education, boys and girls. Um, so the film, though, we're going to discuss today is Rear Window. Um, could you give me a list of the three, which was Stranger on a Train, Rear Window, and the third one was... The Birds. The Birds, yeah. Um, Rear Window, I asked if you wouldn't mind doing because uh it is one of the best examples of everything working like clockwork for a perfect machine uh in terms of the meticulous detail um but also it is a film that is generally well loved and we're starting this podcast and might be fun to talk about some familiar titles before we start digging into the nitty-gritty um i think arguably rear window is the most often referenced for a lot of people to some degree other than maybe psycho or the birds um i think north by northwest too i mean the the thing is that most of his films are referenced in some form or fashion but i think rear window gets a lot of talk and a lot of discussion and uh we're gonna add to that yet again um the uh the one thing i wanted to ask you though of those three which is your most favorite of hitchcock or is your favorite hitchcock not even in that three Oh, man. Uh, probably, I would say Rear Window is probably my favorite of his. Okay, cool. So we're perfect. We're right on track. Yeah. <laughs> um, what What do you love about it so much, even besides the stuff that we're going to be discussing? I just think it's a, it's a very human story. You know, I think all of us, everyone as people, and, and we won't, we as people also won't talk about it, but we've all looked out our window and watched our neighbors and made up narratives about their lives and what they're doing. And um, I think that, in in that way that film is very relatable to most people maybe i'm just a weirdo but i think a lot of people do have that you know aspect of just watching other people and kind of trying to figure out their lives yeah voyeurism you know how i know that's correct because we all are on social media we're all on instagram facebook that's that's true we're already doing it anyway we're we've become a it's just like thelma ritter says we've become a race of peeping toms yes that's true and i'm guilty of it as well guys so don't worry um but um, let, let's kind of jump into uh, Rear Window a little bit. Uh, let's get us started with the production of this film. Uh, it's based on a short story by Cornell Woolrich uh, called It Had to Be Murder. Um, it, uh, the, the, the short story doesn't have 
the Grace Kelly element into it. it and doesn't really have all the other neighbors. It really is just, if you're going to break it down to casting from rear window, it's the Raymond Burr character who is the killer um, and Jimmy Stewart's character. Um, what the script screenwriter, John Michael Hayes ends up doing is expanding it out and creating a, a, a small but elaborate world within this, within this apartment complex that Hitchcock then proceeds to make come to life uh, all on a soundstage that is built to operate just like, for the most part, just like an actual apartment complex. Yeah. And the complex that the uh, killer and the Miss Torso and all the neighbors that he's watching were in, uh, I read had working on electricity and plumbing. So technically probably could have been lived in. I'm sure things weren't quite up to code, but yeah. Well, yeah, of course not. <laughs> it's paramount in the fifties. It's any, it's any movie studio in the fifties. You're going to cut any corner you can. However, though, the sound stage that they shot it on, uh, wouldn't be able to accommodate. So they actually ended up cutting into the floor. So at the, if you're in Jimmy Stewart's apartment, that's ground level. When you go down into the courtyard, that's below the soundstage. So they were able to dig into it and create the, the courtyard in that complex. So basically everything's level from Jimmy Stewart's apartment to Raymond Burr's apartment. So essentially it's, it, it's like a little hole in the middle of the ground. And the lighting grid was set up as such so that they could set it for four different uh, lighting setups, uh, morning, afternoon, twilight, and evening. And so they were able to just switch and it was done. I was also uh, looking into it, and uh, one of the one of the crewmen involved said that the uh, the lighting grid was as such that if you were in the high level, it was unbearable because of the studio lights being so hot. And he he acknowledged like we don't have the same studio lights that we have today. Um, and this interview was back from 1998, so you know obviously they've probably gotten even better. But studio, you and I have been on film sets before. Studio, like any lights are hot. Yeah, they get really hot, and oh, especially yeah. trying to make an entire like essentially apartment block look like it's daytime. Yeah, had to take hundreds of lights. We I, I can't uh, imagine how much heat that would generate. Yeah, no, Aaron and I went to Colorado Film School, and uh, you remember the Titanic light in the studio? Oh yeah, the do we call it the sun gun? The sun gun, yeah. yeah. Um, I never used it. I don't. I don't know of anybody who ever got to use it. I don't either. Yeah, but I was. I was kind of afraid to use it. Yeah, figured but, I'd burn the place down. Exactly. And so, like the, the strongest lights we'd ever use, um, uh, were were still pretty fucking hot. And you'd have to, when you turned it off, like you know, you let them know that you're cooling it down, and then you you had to wait and you had to give it taps with your glove on there to make sure that it wasn't hot until it was absolutely cold, and then you could you know start packing it up. Right. Um, and uh, so you can imagine tons of lights of probably not Titanic light level, but still hot enough. And they're like circling around. You have people um, like the couple with the dog who are consistently hot and sweaty because they're all basically on the balcony throughout most of the film. Right. Um, sleeping out. In their <laughs> with the... I love that. Uh, that guy has a alarm clock. Yeah. Just uh, dangling on. off the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> it's then, so it's so random but it's it's kind of fun of just like a weird additional quirk to the neighborhood that yeah. there's this these people that sleep on the fire escape like. yeah yeah it's just because it's, it's so fucking hot like yeah. and that's another detail in the film is that the temperature keeps going down as the film goes on so like but like every tensions are high when the temperature is high and then as as things get better it goes down to cool like it's almost like measuring the levels of where the story is going um Rear Window, obviously directed by Alfred, by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I didn't need to mention that, did I? Well, I did. Um, 
once again, based on It Had to Be Murder, uh, stars James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, and Raymond Burr. Um, also, Ross Bagdasarian, who, uh, if you don't know, is the creator of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, he plays the piano, uh, the, the, the songwriter in uh, the apartment that writes the song Lisa. Um, so it's a it's a fun little uh, avenue we'll explore later. Um, uh, cinematography, Robert Burks, editor, George Tomasini. This is the last film that Franz Waxman does the music for. And realistically, he doesn't do an original score for the film uh, other than the opening beginning. Um, a lot of the film is consistent of popular music that Paramount had access to, um, uh, along with, you know, other elements of, like i mean there's there is stuff that's originally written for the film but there is a lot of popular music being used throughout like different music cues like the friend uh like the frantic music cue when they're kind of going through the different days of the apartment like the right. um, and then you hear that's amore at one point so uh it's it's a very subtle uh underlay of music in that film uh but it is the last collaboration they have and it is considered one of the first uh, or it, or it's it's among the first jazz scores that waxman does he ends up winning an oscar for another one um so uh released in 1954 does very well very well well received critically well received financially so much so that it kind of sets the standard for hitchcock's popularity in the 50s and also gives hitchcock a lot of freedom to do a lot of things later on uh and I think out of all the films that he did for Paramount under the contract, this is the one film that they were the, probably the happiest with because every other film he did after that uh, was either not well-received, misunderstood, or well-received and understood at another studio. <laughs> um, and then the last film he technically releases under the Paramount contract is Psycho, which they weren't they didn't even want and so the rights went to hitchcock so um the the film uh is essentially a detective story on the amateur level but if you really want to break it down this movie is about how jimmy stewart doesn't want to marry grace kelly <laughs> yeah really like that's everything that that you see going on in the neighborhood kind of feeds that narrative of him coming to terms with his feelings regarding whether or not he wants to marry her. Yeah. And, and the, the initial plot, we should go through it. It is a, a Jimmy Stewart is a photographer, like a, an ace photographer. I, I'd say a daredevil photographer at this point. Cause if he's like running into the middle of danger, right? Yeah. That's in the middle of a racetrack during a crash. That's... Which, which right, right from the beginning, we're taught as film students, don't be like Jimmy Stewart. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are taught not to go into danger. Um, but, uh, and so he's, uh, in a cast and he's in his last week before the cast will get taken off. Um, he's been peering into the apartments and I think it, at this point he's starting to get a lot more used to it and starting to build narratives for these people. Um, you have a newlywed couple across the way, which enters at the beginning of the film. Uh, relatively early. Yeah. It's, it's there. You've been introduced to everyone else, I think before the newlyweds, but they do show up pretty early on. Yeah. And then you have Miss Torso, who is a dancer. Um, and uh, she's uh, played by Georgine Darcy. Uh, fun fact, she was just told to dance. She was not given any dance instructions because Hitchcock just wanted her to figure out her own dance and make it seem like she may not be a professional or maybe an amateur trying to get her career, which lends into the the storyline of her meeting those different men to advance her career. 
Or at least that's what it seems on the surface. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then later she's there with what looks like another potential ballet dancer, a male one, and maybe a casting director going right. through some moves and things in the in the apartment. So definitely plays into that whole idea. Yep. And then you have, um, like we said, the couple on the balcony with the dog. And I love that they have the dog get into a basket. But my thought is how there's no way that that dog is well-trained in New York City to sit in that basket. Like any other dog, I'd imagine they would just jump out of the basket because they don't know any better. Right. Like, yeah, I, I would think so. It was kind of funny, though, that they I mean, obviously, it's a real dog. So they yeah. trained a dog to do it. But um, yeah, that was a fun moment. Yeah. Seeing them put the dog in the basket <laughs> and lower it down and everything. Yeah, uh, just it, that that levity, I think, helps with the tension throughout the rest of the movie to give you that, you know, uh, release on some of those things, which is an important element of Hitchcock. Like he. He is known as the master of suspense, but he is really also a master of humor to a certain degree because he is able to put into his films the levity at the right moment uh, without it overwhelming the narrative. I think the only time where the levity outweighs the suspense is Trouble with Harry, and that's because it's intentional. Um, and also cannot wait to talk about Trouble with Harry because I like that movie a lot as um, as I reviewed it the uh, other day. Um and then you have uh, Lars Thorwald, um, which uh, is the the suspected murderer in the piece. Uh, he has an invalid wife, and they're nagging and bickering all the time. And he is the direct uh, uh, reflection of what Stuart fears in a marriage, uh, which then gets blown out of proportion by this this hack job that comes into the middle of like what would be a noir a noir novel or like a crime story. Uh, and then you have Miss Lonely Hearts, who I think is one of the most depressing and relatable characters in the movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's uh, uh, well. And, uh, going back to the the Thorwald and and his invalid wife, um, that's one thing I think they, by they I mean Hitchcock, missed the mark a little bit with the wife in that I just assumed she was sick or something, and right. that's why he was bringing her, you know, food and bed and that sort of thing. So until it's mentioned that she's an invalid, I would not have known that was what was going because on. Because she does get up at one point, so she, clearly she's not bedridden. Exactly, like. yeah. and that so that kind of threw me a little bit um, initially. I think everyone else's story, you can pretty much, if you watched it without any audio, you could figure out everybody's story and what's going on with them. But I think that one you might miss what's going on with the wife without having that plug. And And we should mention that, like, you know, the murder is the MacGuffin in this film. Uh, the MacGuffin is the thing that doesn't matter, but moves the plot along uh, because this film at the end of the day is about how James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. Weirdo. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's wrong with you? James yeah, Stewart? I, I, she's I, gorgeous. Uh, I don't know. She's she's too perfect. And I was just like, that's not an excuse. Please find something better than that. <laughs> that's a good James Stewart, by the way, especially uh, in that movie. Well, thank you. Um, uh, we'll probably, th there will be a lot of, these dumb impressions guys so i'm sorry um but uh the uh uh no her character like it's funny because if you watch um if you watch the blu-ray of rear window there's a wonderful documentary called rear window ethics which is about the production and also the restoration of the film by robert harris back in the 90s there's a discussion about that there is a level of sympathy to raymond burr primarily because we're only getting him from stewart's perspective and we don't know what he's going through until literally the last moment when he's in James Stewart's apartment, when he's almost pleading for relief before he'd have to kill him. Yeah. He's it's, it's an interesting moment because you've, you've realized that all the little things that you think are not 
impacting him because it's from so far away and we're seeing it from James Stewart's perspective. He's kind of slowly going crazy because he knows someone's onto him, but he doesn't know who or why or what they want. And so he's almost, yeah, in that last scene, kind of desperate when he shows up at, at James Stewart's apartment. Exactly. And going back to the wife of it all, when we, you know, see her get up and do things like in, in the, in the short amount of time that she's there, we don't know what their relationship is, really. We are literally going off of the assumptions of both Stuart and Kelly to a degree. Um, it's why the character of Doyle, I think, is fascinating, because he does provide the level-headed, like, center that's also kind of a thing to throw you off Correct. of the reality of it. But like you, it, it allows the audience to put into question their own beliefs, which is not unheard of in Hitchcock's stories. Like, it, I mean, Psycho's riddled with it because you don't, you you think it can't possibly miss be mrs bates and it turns out it isn't but it is um uh but the uh the, i think that there is a level of like i was thinking about last night when i rewatched it again that there is a coen brothers movie set in raymond burr's apartment that we haven't seen yet that i want to see <laughs> like you could oh, just man. digitally insert jimmy stewart in the background and then just have like somebody like i don't know john goodman in that white room when that yeah. white wig come in <laughs> and play go. raymond burr's character like yeah. i don't have any money <laughs> <laughs> only got a hundred dollars Roseanne. um but uh and then you but like, we'll go to the other neighbors you know like i said you have miss lonely hearts who her story you know, she's a woman who can't really find love. And like the one date that she has is with a rapist. Basically yeah. terrible. Um, and uh, you have Ross Bagdasari and the songwriter. Uh, and, uh, and then you also have the artist who doesn't really get a lot of conversation. Like she's a deaf, she's a deaf woman who's an artist and she's basically making sculptures. And the only really interaction we have with her is that she gets into a, argument of sorts with Raymond Burr's character regarding the garden because she's trying to tell him that she's watering it too much. Um, right. And then she, she does shoo the dog away when it's digging at the flowers at one point as well. But otherwise we don't get much from her. I, um, I, I will say though, in Raymond Burr's defense, it's not any of her business how he does his garden. That's true. It really yeah. isn't like that. That's very fucking rude. <laughs> <laughs> I made a, a bad joke because I, I mean, I realized she was deaf, but she's got that thing hanging on the front of her shirt at the beginning. And I was like, I didn't know they had iPods in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. No, that's a hearing aid <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> you were appropriately guilty afterwards, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> Great. Um, so the story, as, as we were saying, you know, he's, he's laid up. Uh, the only really contact he has with anybody is uh, the the nurse from the insurance company, uh, played by Thelma Ritter, um, and uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Stella is mm -hmm. her name, and uh, they she's kind of a sounding board for his relationship problems to a degree. Like he's basically like the the, the conscience on his shoulder, telling her telling him to get married. Um, she has a nice kind of. Uh, oracle quality about her because she's basically calling everything in the movie. <laughs> yeah, from she's moment one. <laughs> she's a great character. I I love her her character in the movie. The actress is great and just like overall, um, her what she brings to it is is really fun and kind of puts you know James Stewart in his place a little bit a few times. Just uh, I I really enjoyed her as an element in the film. Yeah, and she and she does a lot to. She, it's like a, it's a detail that her, her character is kind of like a detail of. She's not here to present plot elements per se, but she supports them. 
um, in a is she's a supporting actor, but she supports certain like theories and kind of different uh, levels that the characters are going through. Like when when Stewart gets interested in the murder, she's very much invested in making tasteless jokes while he's trying to eat. Or like not even jokes, like she's just she's genuinely wondering like how much blood do you think is spilling out of the bathroom? And meanwhile, James Stewart's trying to eat. Right. Um, which here's a detail that is not necessarily genius. It's questionable. Who eats bacon with a fork? Yeah, that was a little weird. That and he's, is, that is and weird. he's cutting up his eggs with a knife. I'm like, you don't need knife, a knife to cut up eggs. Eggs I could accept if it was like one of those thick, sunny side up things. Like, but I mean, like even that's that's going too far. But bacon is not a fork food. And he also cuts up the eggs and then f- picks up the bacon with the fork. Why were you even messing with the eggs if you were just going to eat the bacon first? Exactly. And and I don't want to hear sometime down the line in one of Jimmy Stewart's diaries where he's just like, one day I ate bacon with a fork and it was the best part of my life. Like, no, that's not that, that bacon is a finger food. It is. It's- yeah. And and you don't need to cut up eggs. You just need to kind of like slice it a little bit with the fork and eat it, or you just do what I do, shove it in your mouth, and then just sop up the remains with toast. Exactly. I'm a monster. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but anyway, he's observing the neighbors, kind of going through, sees that uh, Raymond Burr and his wife are having the problems, and then goes to sleep. Wakes up at one point though, and kind of hears a scream and sound, uh, a scream coming from somewhere. What I like is that the detail of the shot is that it scans the entire courtyard and it kind of starts coming back, but it doesn't hit Raymond Burr's apartment. That's when the sound of screaming is cued and it throws us off of the, the scent of where exactly it's coming from, but he's already making an assumption. Correct. Um, there's, there's a level of, uh, and we could talk a little bit about the detail stuff. Now Cam- camera control is Hitchcock's thing. He uses it to direct the audience to what he specifically wants to see. And this film is, as Peter Bogdanovich says, a testament film to Hitchcockian style. And is definitely a testament to uh, his control of the camera because it does not. You could ar- He makes the argument that he's like doing it for the audience. It, there is an argument that it doesn't um, allow the actors to make a lot of choices. However, I think that he gives them plenty of opportunities to do that when he's not focusing on the people around him. Right. Yeah. And I think like the, especially with the camera, the, one of the things that my wife actually, when we were rewatching it last night pointed out was that, you know, it is very much the filmmaker showing you what they want you to see and kind of directing how you think of and how you look at the narrative Uh, to the point where we see details that James Stewart's character doesn't see, Mm -hmm. which really helps shed doubt on whether or not you think he's right about the murder even. Right. Um, so that I really think that use of perspective and camera and how you're how you're seeing the world the way Hitchcock wants you to see the world is done incredibly well. Yeah, and he does it in other films, but this is the the prime example because he literally turns us into voyeurs in the film. The entire angle and view of the film is essentially to make us James Stewart. We are Jimmy Stewart in the movie, except when we break out of that wall and talk to Grace Kelly for every so often. Um, and then also it puts us in the on edge, even if we already think we know something, we, we may find out like 15 minutes later that we don't because our eyes might be tricking us. Right. And, and a testament to, to the, you know, how well that works was just 
kind of me my uh, last night was the first time my wife had seen the movie and I was watching her out of the corner of my eye during like key moments and seeing her reactions and uh, you know it's kind of the kind of reaction I don't see out of a lot of modern movies from her in this which just is you know shows how good Hitchcock was at what he did that an audience you know what is it 60 70 years later yeah can watch a movie and still be on edge with you know those moments he's built into it which is which is fascinating actually let's let's jump into that a little bit do you think that you could show this film to say an audience of let's say 18 to 25 year olds with no context whatsoever and get similar reactions to what you would have gotten 70 something years ago i don't i don't think so um i think that I saw that from her just because she's more of an artist and a film buff and has that kind of mentality. I think when you, when you get to younger audiences now, they might, they maybe have seen one of the movies that's derivative of that, of rear window and, and thought maybe not even made the connection or said, Oh, this, this must be what inspired that. But I don't know. I'm not sure. Honestly, it it does boil down to the argument of like, will they get past the antiquity on the surface? Right. Because it's going to look different than the things they're used to with the cameras that we have today. But it's also going to sound different from the language and the dialogue and the context of the time. Um, you know, it, that's a big thing about Hitchcock films is that a lot of them do need to be taken in context because of the time that they were made. But there's also a, a wiggle room to provide a modern contextual argument for something being good or bad, which, you know, again, is one of many things like that gets discussed ad nauseum when it comes to Hitchcock. Yeah, and that's uh, something when I watch his movies, I kind of have to shut off that part of my brain yeah. and say, when this was shot, this was normal, this was acceptable, whether or not that it was okay that that was the case. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to we have to think about it in the context of that time. And, yeah. and to that end, too, we don't want to edit or change that because we don't want to manipulate, you know, that's that's how we were. Like, we, if we don't have a baseline for what we did wrong before, we don't right. know how to improve on that. Exactly. Um, and by wrong, I don't mean anything film technique-wise. I just mean treatment of, of certain people or groups or how someone's spoken to in, in some of his films. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, you have, to, you have to put it into some context before. It's all story and character development, which leads us to, so he suspects the murder, but meanwhile, the more important part of the story is that James Stewart doesn't, doesn't know if he wants to marry Grace Kelly, which, again weird um uh and uh grace kelly enters the movie um which by the way i don't think there's any shot of a of a gal um or even a man for that matter that looks as glamorous as grace kelly's uh close-up when she enters jimmy stewart's apartment that is that's a combination of the right actor the right director and the right camera team doing something pretty beautiful and what's amazing is apparently that shot, amongst other shots, were one of the ones that were significantly damaged when they went and did the restoration back in 98 um, because uh, uh, one of the yellow layerings had um, deteriorated like by over 90%. Yeah, I remember reading about that. It's fascinating, too, just from like a, a restoration. Um, but for, for me, like my day job, I do a lot of archiving and, and managing digital content. And my wife's background is in art restoration. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of having to restore that is, it's a little mind blowing. I mean, there's some things that I look at digitally that I'm like, well, this is fucked. We can't, we can't fix this at all. Yep. And it's so crazy to think you could in, in, you know, 
those old films have something that substantially damaged and still be able to bring it back to almost it, true color is. And they had to develop whole new processes to get this amongst the other five. This is one of the Hitchcock five, which are films that the estate held the rights to and hadn't really been re-released. They were rear window vertigo trouble with Harry rope and uh, North by North or not North by Northwest. Sorry. The man who knew too much, uh, the remake from uh, the fifties with Stewart and Doris day. Um, and these films were not in the best condition um, upon their rest upon them getting restored. Um, the which you know, if there's one thing I would want on this podcast to be a through line is that restoration is important and key to us being able to see these pieces of history. Uh, and specifically with Hitchcock, we are lucky that all of his films but one are here and available and restored. Um, uh, like I said before, one of the films, the mountain Eagle is a lost film, but we can find it if we try hard enough, I'm sure, because things we've thought were lost before have been found to some degree, except for London after midnight. We'll never find that fucker. (laughs) You know what London after midnight is, Mm -hmm. is the launch, the launch, any, uh, where vampire movie where he looks like a fucking werewolf really. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you can only now see pictorial restorations of that, which is basically going through the stills, right. and breaking down the story. Um, but uh, I mean that like they found some like footage of the Beatles or something they didn't know existed in like New Zealand or something earlier this year. So, I mean, that, yeah, someone at some point I feel like is going to stumble across that. And if you, if you worked, if you know of an orphanage that's closed down or a mental hospital that has closets, <laughs> please go inside them. Contact nobody's, the real nerds podcast. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's going to go. Nobody's going to bother you. They're abandoned buildings. <laughs> I'm just making dumb assumptions or, you know, go find Michael Caine's character from the cider house rules. I'm sure he's still got that eight millimeter thing of King Kong lying around. It's one of my favorite things is that they just got that. that that's like one of the things they, they do for fun. Right? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I actually contact the British Film Institute because they are working to restore those. I have no money to restore these films. That's true. I could just write restoration with crayon and sell it on bootleg and it would work. But there you go. That wouldn't be fun. You know, no, that wouldn't be cool. Wouldn't. And in fact, those restorations that aren't restorations ruin the uh, ruin the legacy of restoration and make it very hard for other people to do their jobs. So stop fucking doing it. Um, anyway, I'm off my uh, soapbox here. Grace Kelly enters the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, and the basic uh, crux of the film is, again, James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. The, uh, the the handling of their relationship, I think, still has some relevancy, although it is very mired in uh, 50s politics uh, uh, and cultural uh, cultural behavior. Um she is a very independent woman, like, or at least very much she's in control of her own destiny. And she is pining to have Stuart in her life, but Stuart is bringing in that male doubt. Right. Um, well, and, and largely too, I think that's, you know, it, I think they do a good job of showing how she's very like, you know, uh, New York elite, um, fancy clothes, you know, in the first scene, she mentioned, mentions her dress costs $1,200, which in 1954 is just absurd yeah um and then you know james stewart's obviously a journalistic photographer and he goes on safaris and stands in the middle of racetracks like we set up and yeah you know it's this idea of they're from two very different worlds and how can they possibly coexist in one unit and to that end i can appreciate the story of 
having these two you know we we deal with that in modern day if you have vastly different interests from someone you're seeing it's probably not going to work out in the long run or, or even if you do but it's just a matter of the the geography of it or even just like the situation itself um you know like i don't want to move for your job you don't want to move for my job you know stuff like that 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 is still a very relevant concept exactly yeah and, and that's the other thing i think he because she's from this kind of fancier background he can't picture her being this adventurous outdoorsy you know on a safari with him taking photos on the back of a water buffalo which he then associates with a loss of freedom if he were to marry her which is why he is one of the reasons why he is as hesitant as he is uh, that along with the whole perfection argument which i think uh is a little uh a tiny bit antiquated um i think we still have those notions in our heads in terms of romance to a degree but it also is very outdated <laughs> Definitely. It's and, like one of many things that needs to go. <laughs> and I think part of what's amplifying his feelings too is the fact that he's got that broken leg at the beginning of the movie and he hasn't been able to get out and shoot. And so he's already feeling trapped by his current circumstances. And that I think amplifies his fears of ultimately marrying Grace Kelly's character and that he'll be even more, he'll basically be stuck like that forever now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a level of impotency that uh, actually Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich, suggested in an interview with Hitchcock that Hitchcock concurs with which is that he's he is the he is an inactive character and yet he is our our point of view and our protagonist um whereas Lisa is a very active participant in the film like she's actually much more active in the film than I think a lot of heroines of her time um I think even though it doesn't always hold a bunch of water but I think so too yeah she's she's called to action a lot more and does a lot more of the risky things and in a way, it's it's kind of an interesting thing to show that she's kind of showing James Stewart that she can be the adventurous and risky type yeah. that he's looking for. In a way, though, that you know, when we talk about the antiquatedness of it, it is kind of that playing into she has to conform to his world as opposed to him conforming to hers if it's going to work. Exactly. Now, and that is that is a that is an issue. However, it is an issue of the day. So again, there is a contextual uh, element to it. However, though, regardless of that, though, she is the one making the decision to adapt. So it almost is like, obviously, the motivations of it are a little sketchy. But the bottom line is, is that she is she is making the decision. To, she, James Stewart doesn't necessarily tell her to go down there to to slip the letter under the door. Right. In she, fact, he doesn't want her to. But yeah. Ultimately, and, she makes that call. Exactly. And then makes the... I mean, Stuart encourages her to go out with Ritter into the ground, but R- Stuart doesn't tell her to go up the, 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 the ladder to, to his apartment. Right. And that's another... Um, I don't know if we're jumping ahead to the climax here, but that's when we get into to that piece there's a lot interesting happening there yeah well we'll get to that here in a second um but in between that though there is obviously the discussion of should i get married should i not and then also the ethics of voyeurism which is a detail that is prevalent in all of hitchcock's flicks because a lot of his stuff is of a point of view uh he puts you in the voyeurism table multiple times throughout all of his films uh this one's the most overt um, or at least the most like on the nose. Um, I, I think it, a detail of it to me is just putting us into putting us into the character's position to make us feel more involved and invested in the story. But the things he innovated uh, visually to 
grasp that perception are pretty astounding. Yeah, I think um, what I really like about it, too, is that that element of voyeurism, you know, when when the um, nurse shows up the first time, she calls him out on on peeping on his neighbors and, and says it's a what a month sentence in the workhouse or something for being a peeping Tom. <laughs> uh, but in a way, it, it sets it up as uh, that James Stewart's character is essentially breaking the law initially, like out of the gate. And so he's kind of doing something questionable, which makes you wonder is what he's doing even okay, um, even if he is right about it, or especially if he's wrong about it. Yeah. Um, and he is it, a guy who is full of uh, ignorance about the Bill of Rights and uh, the the uh, the amendments to the Constitution, which we find out, where we we are reminded of via Tom Doyle, who is his uh, detective friend, who has to remind James Stewart constantly about basic human rights. Right, exactly. Which is really weird. <laughs> it is pretty funny. And you do have to wonder, again, like, in the context of that in the 50s, like, was that something you did need to point out? Like, maybe a lot of people didn't realize, oh, you can't just go in there and do that, you know? Yeah, there um, is, like, there is a level of, like, you could allude it to the McCarthyism of the era, but you can also transplant it to anything today, especially with, you know, the the, the questioning in certain police work today is against certain, but you know, there's uh, th- there's a level of just humor to again, it's a small detail. He keeps using a back scratcher throughout the entire film, and there's something very strange about Jimmy Stewart working around and fiddling around with a with a back scratcher while he's talking about denying people their rights yeah. to a fair trial, <laughs> to search warrants, to probable cause. Yeah, exactly. It's just like no, no, no. They don't. They don't need to have a warrant. You just break into their fucking house. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I can't get this itch, <laughs> motherfucker. Um, but. Uh, Again, the detective checks in on this stuff because they're all war buddies. So I guess that's what you do. You you tangentially break the law because your war buddy asked you to. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, uh, finds that there's not enough evidence to suggest it. Grace Kelly brings in the feminine intuition, which I think is uh, a fun little outdated concept that holds absolutely no merit whatsoever. It is very convenient to the story. Um but basically she she points out like why would the wife go out of town if she didn't have her wedding ring which is like the big one that does end up being the reality of it but like tom doyle brings up at every point you know this like just because you think this thing of the feminine intuition is like all circumstantial um so it's but it is the thing that kind of starts connecting grant i'm sorry uh stewart uh kelly in terms of their becoming uh, synchronized in thought about maybe Raymond Byrd did commit this murder. Right. And and it's a way, you know, as, as dated and, or, you know, arguably questionable as it is that her, her assessment of, of women and always taking jewelry and perfume and stuff, which again, at the time probably was the case. Um, it's important in that it makes her part of that team exactly. to solve and, the mystery. And, and, and that's why, while the concept itself is a little dated, it, it, it reaffirms her involvement and really like as a character, it shows her gaining interest in his affairs, which is admirable. If not, you know, obviously as we've discussed, like she shouldn't have to conform to him, but she does love him. And so I think she is trying to take an active interest and show that she's actually in a way she's trying to show that she's better than him by taking an interest in this. Whereas Stuart 
right off the cuff shows that he has absolutely no care for anything Park Avenue bullshit. Um, you know, I mean, like that's kind of the basis of that whole discussion where he's just like, "Shut up!" <laughs> right. Well, and that's I think it to some degree too shows that she has that like innate um, thirst for adventure and just hasn't had an outlet for it. And this mystery that she's gotten kind of wrapped up in because of him spying on his neighbors is like, she's getting excited about the idea and and looking for clues herself and really getting into it so that, you know, and maybe to that end, it is kind of what she sees in James Stewart is that she has this adventurous side that she's never been able to explore. Yeah. And he's an outlet for that. And, and, and amongst those small details that we discuss, like a lot of, obviously you said the camera and the, the, the choice of, what shots to put where uh, basically as it's been discussed before Hitchcock storyboarded and pre-planned and pre-prodded things to death uh, to the point where it was just point and sh- the directions are all here just now just use them um, and uh, and guide the actors if they need it but the uh, one of the fascinating elements of rear window is that like so Hitchcock likes to use a 50 millimeter lens because it is a close approximation to the human eye and what it sees, um, which is very prevalent in rear window. But Stewart does not get a lot of close up with it. Like he does not get a lot of, uh, he, he's usually either in a medium or a wide rarely to, and, or, and also a lot of times with other people in the frame with him, but we rarely close in on his face. One of the few times we do, and it's a small detail and you don't notice it unless you're paying attention to the shot acumen is after she comes back from, putting the letter in the apartment and getting excited and saying, what's the reaction? What was it like? Uh, the documentary pointed out that like, that's one of the few times where you see a close up on him and he just looks like awestruck by her. Like it's the first time that he's truly in love with her is when that close up appears. So those small things like that, if you look in the detail of Hitchcock, he, he shows you what's important by the level of the shot, the angle on the shot, what kind of lens he's using. Like that's how he's telling you what's important in this moment. Like he is manipulating you emotionally through his camera in a way that I think a lot of filmmakers come close to, but never quite match. Um, I think Spielberg does it a lot because that is his, that is his game. Um, And I'd also, I'd also, I mean, obviously De Palma rips off Hitchcock, but I think De Palma does the manipulation in a different way. Um, but, but it is still used to this day. If we want somebody to feel what we want them to feel, we use the camera, not even the actor necessarily to a degree. Correct. Yeah. And, and I think that where it's done ex- um, exceptionally well in rear window is uh, with when they set up, when the murder happens mm-hmm. and you see from, you know, James Stewart's kind of dozed off and then he wakes up and hears the scream and the crash. Right. And then he sees the, um, uh, Thorgood, right? Is that the name? Uh, yeah, Thorgood. Yeah, yeah. It sees him leave with the case, um, and then come back with the case, and then leave again. Or Thorwald. Sorry. Thorwald. Yes, thank you. I was like, I know it's something with a th. I can't believe I forgot it already. Um, he so <laughs> Thornhill. Yeah. Oh wait, we're back to wait. North by Northwest. <laughs> he uh, so he takes off a few times, and then that key moment when James Stewart's asleep, and we see him leave with a woman mm. early in the morning. Um, that right there is, is, again, one of those details where the audience knows, but James Stewart doesn't know. And then he hears through the detective that somebody saw them leave and everything else. And with all of that in there, um, again, going back to, and this was great that I had someone to watch it with to get this other perspective. My wife was actually surprised that the guy had actually killed his wife at the end. 
because of how they showed that she just assumed that James Stewart was wrong the whole movie, like making up this whole crazy narrative. It is a misleading shot. And, and that's, and it's brilliant because you do like, it gives you as the viewer that doubt to be really not sure yeah. what's really going on. You and, don't necessarily want to just side with Stewart. Like, I mean, we'll talk about it in some of the imitations, but like a lot of the, the power of that film is that it does muddle your thought and put you into question. Like you, you should doubt the way James Stewart should be doubting. Like you almost get put in Tom Doyle's shoes a lot more um, than you'd think because of how much coincidence and how much circumstantial evidence is presented. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, amongst the, I mean, we, we go to those details, like he kind of uses smaller like incidents in the plot to throw us into a weird position. Like the, the one, first of all, RAP that dog. Right. Um, you know, but that dog like flows through and then all of a sudden he's gone and we assume that it's buried in the garden. Uh, and so when there's nothing in the garden, like, but we're still fixed on that garden. Like, even if we're not showing it on screen, we're, we're, we as the audience have noticed it enough to where we're like, the garden, the garden, it's got to be in the garden. There's and something it, with that, yeah. And then he throws you off and realize, oh, it's not in the garden. If there's one thing I have a problem with in it, in it, in this film is that the, the, the garden is explained right away with a line of dialogue. <laughs> Which oh. is like, oh yeah, the dog found it, so he took it over to the river. Right. Uh, but like, it, it, I mean, like, it's fine. It's just one of those things where I'm just like, I oh, I get it. We're wrapping everything up now. I get it. Um, but the, uh, but I, those are problems that every movie possesses, and they're not, they're not problems. They're just part of the movie going experience. Right. And I think the the dog thing is kind of questionable in that if the dog kept digging there, so he moved the thing. Why did he need to kill the dog? Because if the dog kept digging even after he moved the murder weapon. There wouldn't have been anything to find there anyway. Because he's a fucking monster, is what. Apparently, he, clearly yeah. he's a, clearly clearly he's an emotionally damaged monster. It's either it's either that or he's a cat fan. That uh, could be. And that, he's yeah. just show he's asserting his fandom. Yeah, you know, like like people do on the internet to a disgusting degree. Yeah. Um. So precisely, uh, the internet is like Raymond Burr killing a dog. <laughs> <laughs> um. So anyway, the uh, they go and investigate. They find um. Uh, evidence that uh, the wife is indeed probably dead because of a wedding ring that is left behind. Another de detail that is fascinating because it's from a far away shot, uh, which we, you know, again, we brought up the 50 millimeter lens, but he's, we're looking at everything from as close a vantage point as we can because we're all from Stuart's vantage point. So there's probably even details that Burr and the actress playing his wife are given by Hitchcock that we don't even notice because they are going in the background. Like there, there is literally an entire story going on in the back. Yeah, um, and that's. I mean, I love that too because anytime you're in the apartment with James Stewart and seeing him in the background, you can still see the actors doing things. There's still there's it's it's a living, breathing place yeah. throughout the every take. So it's, everyone's doing something all the time in that set. It's an operating community. There was a there's a production note that. Uh, they had kind of wire. They had earpieces where they couldn't talk to Hitchcock, but Hitchcock could give direction to them, uh, and that's how they're able to kind of like keep maneuvering and flowing in the wider shots where you see everything else still going on. Um, and it, there, there is a level of interesting. There, I guess we'll go right into it. Is the pure cinema element of it all, which uh, pure cinema is the idea that you show the you you present the story through imagery as much as possible without the use of 
dialogue or in the case of silent films dialogue cards um and and particularly sound like sound is like especially in silent films it's not even a factor but if you're going to do it with sound use as minimal sound as possible uh this film incorporates that to like the nth degree a lot of times we are watching silent films from across the way that's basically what we're watching yeah and, and another thing i really love about this movie that it i didn't notice obviously the first time i watched it but on rewatchings, i realized all of the sound in the film is produced in the neighborhood yeah and that may to to clarify that because some of you might say well of course it is that's where the movie takes place anytime there's music in a scene it's coming from the composer's apartment or yeah. somebody's radio or so every every element of sound in that film is like practical in the space where the movie's happening and it's coming from the appropriate distance to Stewart's apartment so right. the music is closer because it is closer to his apartment. The sirens that are going on when, especially they're, they're laid very cleverly to where sirens are going off uh, in the scenes where Burr and his wife are fighting or like in, in an argument state um, or the music from the vantage point of looking at Miss Lonely Hearts is adjusted slightly. Right. Um, but th- it all comes from appropriate distance and is recorded at that distance in order to get the actual perception correct. Um, and there's, uh, there, there's a level of genius to the fact that he uses it sparingly. He does not just overwhelm the situation with only those sounds. Like, cause if that were the case, then the whole, the whole movie would have an underlaid soundtrack, but he selects it because he knows this is cinema and he can pick and choose where he puts some things. Right. And there's, it's interesting too, cause there are some elements where you hear, a line or a word from someone across the way, but you don't hear anything else. And you kind of wonder, well, it's weird that I just happen to hear that one word, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've been sitting in my condo and heard people outside talking and they've said something loudly. And then I hear just muffled speaking after that. So it's not completely unrealistic, but it is kind of, there's a few moments where it's a little, you know, a little bit out of place, but overall, like the first time when I first read that, I had to go back and look and see like, is that really the case? Cause I feel like it, it just flows so smoothly. You don't even notice that. Oh yeah. All the audio is coming from it within this, this location. Yeah. And within that distance and just, and, and uh, this, the sound design is sparing because of, because of our ability to kind of sit with that silent motif of just watching the neighbors. Sometimes there's sound that we're not even just, as you said, we're not even noticing that there's sound mm-hmm. because we're focused on the imagery. Right. He really is pointing your eye toward the imagery, which is important. There's like, there's really great dialogue in this film, but it's mostly coming obviously from Stuart Grace, um, Thelma Ritter or, um, uh, uh, Doyle. So there's not uh, the, the majority of the film, I would say operates in a silent motif because it is about like what Stuart's seeing and our perception of what Stuart is. Um, like the, the scene at the end when Burr confronts him, there's only a little couple lines of dialogue, but the whole action of the scene itself, you take the sound out of it. It's effective on its own. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't, you don't need the, like the entire movie could probably be watched without audio and you wouldn't f- miss anything that's happening. Which is appropriate for most Hitchcock films. Not right. all, but most. Right. Um, he, if he can get away with it, I'd say Topaz needs dialogue. Um, <laughs> I love Topaz, but it needs dialogue. It cannot fully operate as a silent film. Although there are many moments in Topaz where you have a lot of silent areas that are perfect. Right. Um, 
But I mean, like the key, like even the opening shot with uh, you see James Stewart in the wheelchair with the broken leg and then it pans to the busted camera <laughs> and then up to the shot of the race car. Mm-hmm. And right there, I was like, that's how he broke his leg. I just knew yeah. that's what had happened. It's- and then later on the phone, he confirms it. But you get that from that setup without even needing to hear it. The exposition is not really exposition. Yeah. It's 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 conversation that happens to directly relate to it. But it, it, exposition is... I think sometimes that word gets thrown around constantly when there's over explanation, but in reality, like if you're doing it correctly, it's not, ex- it's not an exposition dump. It's very much just telling the story. Like he talks about a broken leg, but he's mainly talking about the progress of it. Right. What we know about the accident is presented solely on a visual level. Um, uh, and uh, which, which is actually, it's, it's funny because of the last scenes of the film are virtually silent. All that's going on is the song Lisa, um, which uh, plays when uh, the the songwriter plays it for Miss Lonely Hearts because that song saves her life from taking a bunch of pills. Which, right? I, I, like, there's I mean, you, there's a part of me that's very interested in Raymond Burr's character, obviously, because that's the thing that you know you're you're drawn to. But like, there's another part of me that's just like, oh God, I hope Miss Lonely Hearts doesn't commit suicide. <laughs> right. Well, and that's what I think was brilliant about that end scene because she's you know she dumps the pills out and without even the nurse mentioning what kind of pills those are and what the effect would be you know what's happening there without that that she, context she just said i've seen enough of those pills in my life to know what they are and like but she's like, right. like i think she mentions the name of it once but it's like dropped completely right and and it's not a name that you would even recognize today maybe back then you might have known what those pills were but yeah. um what what i love cigarette about cigarette pills <laughs> <laughs> what i love about that though is um it because of the immediacy of her potentially committing suicide plus um Grace Kelly being in the other apartment trying to find some evidence yeah. um, as a viewer, you know, you're wondering like I am sitting there thinking I wouldn't be taking my eyes off of Grace Kelly, but then you've got Miss Lonely Hearts potentially committing suicide. So you want to watch her too, to make sure she's not going to do anything. You don't need to call an ambulance or something right. to help her out. So it, it creates this alternate um, dilemma, right? Where you're, where you can understand why he's not, his focus isn't entirely on Grace Kelly because there's this other immediate problem happening. Right. Um, and I really liked that as a viewer because then you, you know, it makes sense that he kind of gets the drop on her. Cause you can see, um, you can see like on the street when he leaves, when he's coming back, they should have enough lead time to get her out of his, his apartment. And the fact that they don't, um, again, is because of what's going on with Miss Lonely Heart. So I really like that. Uh, and then also just that it's kind of lively in the the block that night. You know, there's people in the musician's place and there's um, there's just, there's a lot going on to yeah. be a distraction during that moment. Yeah, so everything's kind of playing into, I mean, one, normal neighborhood life, but two, into the story that Hitch wants to tell. Right. Um, so, uh, well, by the end of it, you know, Jimmy Stewart... Breaks another leg. <laughs> He's really bad with legs. Uh, and uh, the killing is solved. He was actually cutting up the body and burying it all over town in different places and different directions, which um, I was just like, oh, he did the Dexter thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really dark for like 1954. I was kind of surprised how dark that was. And it, it, like, obviously, you don't see it. It's not, you know, violent or anything, but just the concept of it is very. It is. You know, the first time I saw it was. Uh, it was middle school and it just, it felt weird to hear them discuss dismemberment in a fifties film. Like the, the visuals 
the visuals of a 50s film or even a 40s film do not suggest that I will hear about body parts being taken apart. Yeah, exactly. But or... then you get older and you realize that these are they're all over every classic film. Like they say the words, they just can't show it. So like because when, when you hear the dismemberment language, you auto, my mind automatically goes to Texas Chainsaw Massacre or um like uh, it's just these kind of gore hound films of the 80s where it's like, you know, you know, body part falling off is normal or even night of the living dead, which has, you know, stuff being taken out of the body. But, uh, there's a macabre to it, but it's so lighthearted in tone that since it's only through the dialogue, the film is still oddly appropriate for children. <laughs> yeah. No, really. And it's, it's funny. Cause they, when they mention it, it's done in a comedic way. As you said, she's discussing these, like, I wonder how you'd go about cutting up a body while he's cutting up his breakfast. Yeah. And, um, he's, you know, he, gives up on eating and starts to drink his coffee and she says you know he better get that trunk out of there before it starts leaking and then he puts the coffee down. <laughs> you know it's like those kind of moments there it's funny and then when you look at historically um and and uh, i just like i like you know unsolved cases unsolved murders that sort of thing yeah and you read about it and yeah historically you know they're like fucked up crimes like that have happened throughout our history so it's not that out of place that in the 50s you talk about it you just it feels like a more modern thing because i think we talk about it more today i have always said that there's a i actually used doris day's death as an example of this um when doris day died there's a lot of discussion about her image um as kind of like a it's like almost it's a very much still one of the last remaining 50 symbols of like when we think of the fifties, we think of this pure, clean America, like this like sterile environment where everything's like dad off to work, mom in the kitchen, kids getting into some mischief, but not that much, uh, which is completely unfounded by the pop culture of the day, by the news of the day, by the reality of the day. I mean, the fifties is when Ed Gein is caught. (laughs) So (laughs) there is not, you can't tell me that the fifties were wholesome without me pointing up a picture of Ed Gein and going like, lampshade of human skin like <laughs> yeah exactly no that's goodbye horses i'm crying over you no. <laughs> um it'll be like what's that song and i'll be like you're, you're in the 50s you'll hear it later um but um but you, you even watch doris day movies like not they're not all clean they're not wholesome like right. i mean like pillow talk with rock hudson is a sex comedy so it's right. just, you know like there, there's a level of ignorance on that level like i mean and well, even going further back, like Penny Dreadfuls and like the the stories of the era from Britain that they you know, obviously make their way to America, you know there there is there's a level of macabre that we've always been interested in. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, when you you know, uh, I think again for the time frame, it makes sense that they're talking about it and not showing it because again, there's the interest in it and that morbid curiosity, and then to some degree, the speculation that they're making of like, oh, he killed her and chopped up the body, like makes it even more extreme of a, of a leap that, okay, maybe he murdered his wife, but really do you think he'd like cut her up into tiny pieces to get her body out of there? Like that seems a little far fetched. Right. Again, for an audience now, not so much because we've seen that happen in movies a million times, but back then, um, it could, I think, even let, lead to more doubt from the viewer that they're correct about what happened to. Which kind of leads to a misperception of, you know, oh, well, the filmmakers of that day were great because they knew that they didn't have to show a lot to to create a horrifying element. And um, I, and I always kind of go back to like that. That might be true. 
However, I I bet you anything, if they didn't have the sensors ramming down their throats, they would have shown a whole lot more. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I I don't think so in Rear Window particularly because yes. you need the doubt, but in other movies, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Rear Window is one of the many exceptions because again, it's it's a balanced argument. Like right. there's multiple ends of this, but you know, with Rear Window, you obviously obviously you don't need that, and like he so he uses the standards of the day to his advantage. All you have to do is talk about it. You don't have to show anything. I think the most violent image in the film is honestly the dog dead. The, the dog laying there dead. That is the most violent imagery that you see in the film. Yeah, it's definitely. not even Burr going up to Stewart. Yeah, that's not really that. That whole scuffle is pretty pretty tame by any standards. But yeah, the the dead dog's probably the one like yeah. the most upsetting thing you see. Yeah, and then I think like there is an element that the 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 imagery of Stewart's obsession is a little violent in its approach, but it's. I mean, like that's 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 a loaded like I guess it's a, it could be an unfounded statement, but like his just his obsession is is violent to him, right? Because um, it is like over, it's overwhelming him, and he's using it as a clear distraction for again not wanting to marry Grace Kelly, right? Uh, but the story ends. Burr is arrested. We cut to another shot of the neighborhood. All is well. Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts and the songwriter look like they might get together. Who knows? Stay yeah. tuned for Rear Window too. Yeah. Um, uh, the 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 Burr apartment is being painted. Will a new uh, couple move in there and have problems? Stay tuned. Um, and uh, the artist is doing her thing. We really really drop her like a freaking thread out of nowhere because she has nothing to do in the movie yeah, other we than kind of one two scenes. I um, almost wonder if she's like a a red herring to make you think something's going on with her. Um, could have been, yeah, could have been a but, thrown in like like throw off and whatnot. Miss Torso, the dancer, uh, turns out she does have a steady bow, and it's a young man in the army who, I guess by standards, does not w- w- it, like. He's a schlubby guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's like tall he's, and blonde, he's, and he's kind of short and got glasses. He's and, us. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He's, um, he is not what you expect to pair up with that that actress. Which again, I love. I love when filmmakers play on those expectations, and I I love that Hitchcock was early on was doing that to a degree. Although, you know, like it, it's it's. It's fascinating because, like, she's just a periphery character, but she's one that we are fascinated with amongst the others. And then the newlywed couple across the street looks like they're having some problems. Will we have a rear window to maybe? We may have one. No, we're not going to. It's been 70 fucking years. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do love that the uh, the married couple, they're introduced and they come in and then the... Uh, I think the the wife mentioned no, excuse me, motions towards the window, and they pull the blinds down. And every time James Stewart looks over, the blind is still down, and it's just implied that they're just like constantly banging after they get back to the place. Yeah, but then like when it does go up, they're having problems, like, exactly, or like, yeah. or like they're stress abound and whatnot. Which which leads me to wonder if like the idea of the film is that this cycle kind of repeats within this courtyard of like another couple is going to have a problem and only Jimmy Stewart's going to be able to see it. Right. Um, but it doesn't matter because he's asleep with two casts on and the camera pans to Grace Kelly wearing adventure wear, which in a very nicely uh, ironed pair of jeans, clearly like just off the shelf, very sensible shoes for walking and reading a book about hiking, but then she puts the book down and pick up, picks up fa- uh, Bazaar's fashion magazine. So the, the, the implication in the documentary that I saw was that, like, you know, just because she's, you know, gotten uh, 
Stewart's affection does not mean that she's not going to, uh, uh, that she's going to abandon her own interests, which I, I appreciate that that's, that's, that's the viewpoint of it. I wonder if there's something a little more going on in, within that imagery about the idea of no one really conforming to anything or like, Right. And I wonder, like, it's it's one of those difficult things where you could look at it and depending on what lens you look at it through, you could say that he's saying despite everything, she's still like, you know, vapid and only cares about fashion and things. But I I like the assessment and I think I would um, subscribe to the assessment that while she can adapt to James Stewart's lifestyle and being able to do that. She doesn't have to do that at the, the expense of sacrificing who she is and but, the things that she's interested in, which I think is the more, the more prominent, uh, the, the more prominent and accurate notion than to just kind of like, it's funny. You could see it in the fifties and think of it as a joke going like, Oh, she's just faking it. But, but you read it. If you read it through the character's progression and development throughout the film, it really is just like, I can like two things. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and there's nothing, you know, that's a great, I think it's a great element to it to show that you can, you can be both. You don't have to just be, you know, the, the park Avenue crowd and, or the, you know, on a safari or getting shot at in a war zone crowd. You can, you can live in both worlds and still have those, uh, those interests and exist with someone else. Right. So, Thus ends Rear Window, a Paramount release. Uh, the blinds go down, the movie ends, and then you see Deluxe Digital logo in the back of your Blu-ray. Um, the film was nominated for uh, some Academy Awards for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, John Michael Hayes, Best Cinematography, Color, because they divided it up back then, uh, Robert Burks, and Best Sound Mixing, Loren L. Ryder. Best Sound Mixing does not win, which I think is... A kind of a travesty i don't i don't see who won that particular award here but um uh, but i think that that's like a testament to the small details action element that we're talking about is like the idea of pure cinema being that you don't even have to have sound and you should just show it through the imagery alone with the sound that is used it complements the pure cinema theory because it uses it as sparingly as possible like it really it it is very conservative in its approach to sound as opposed to a lot of films today that are overwhelming with sound. Correct. And I, I think that's to, to your point. Um, it's kind of a, unfortunate that it didn't win because you know, that just because there's not a lot of something doesn't mean it's not done incredibly well or, you know, mixed well or um, complements the, the content well. And that ultimately I think is what's the most important thing, right? It's not, a ton of sound that's well mixed together, but how is it used and how well is it used and how well does it establish a place and a space? And I think, you know, rear window, particularly with the audio or lack of audio is very well done. Sorry. I'm going to try to find out who would have beaten freaking rear window and sound mixing. Because this just doesn't seem like... Uh, oh, uh, well, best director, by the way, was Ilya Kazan for On the Waterfront, which makes a whole lot of sense. Um, we're going down to sound mixing. You're watching podcasting in action right here. Well, while you're looking, I can always... Uh, yeah, va vamp a little bit. Vamp. <laughs> vamp about the uh, uh, fun little bit of trivia. The family... or Not family. The two people sleeping on the fire escape. Yeah. They uh, laid them different directions when it was going to start raining and then didn't give them direction on what to do. Mm -hmm. And so they them scrambling is the actors actually scrambling, trying to like 
get out of the rain and yeah. get the mattress inside. And, and he just said, one like, of them like falls in the window and they just took the, they just used that take because it was so yeah. funny. And Hitchcock was laughing so hard. Hitchcock was a prankster on set and in real life. And if you read some about some of his pranks, they're borderline abuse. But this one in particular is a fun one. And he actually never called for another take. Like that was the one he wanted to use. Um, the winner for best sound recording um, or mixing, I guess, of that era, because they, they don't really divide up the category at that time. Uh, was the Glenn Miller story, which, sure. <laughs> other, other nominees were Brigadoon, The K-Mutiny, and Susan Slept Here. Uh, I can make an argument for The K-Mutiny being a, being a decent nomination. Uh, and yeah. I'm sure Brigadoon because it's a musical. Right. There's Yeah, there's a lot of audio happening in there. But but the Glenn Miller story. Yeah. Thus kind of wrapping up uh, Rear Window and the meticulousness. We were able to get both of those elements of the conversation together within the film. That That's a power of Rear Window is that it is very much a, uh, a, 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 a glimpse into Hitchcock's technical acumen, his de- attention to detail and his genius. Um, and also, as we discussed, like some elements that may or may not work like it's, a, but it, it is a film that is worth reexamining and revisiting. Um, it's revisited so much that it has had imitators, <laughs> which we are going to talk about a little bit. Uh, first off, we'll get the a, a direct remake out of the way, which is Rear Window from 1998. It was a TV movie um, directed by Jeff Blechner, um, and it uh, has Christopher Reeve in the Jimmy Stewart role and Daryl Hannah and Robert Forrester. Um, I'm, and t- I'm not the only one who sees the irony of Christopher Reeve in that Jimmy Stewart role. I right? think that's why he was cast. <laughs> <laughs> call me, call me wrong, but I, I think that that's why he's. Uh, uh, May have had in... something to do with it, I, you yeah. know. And Daryl Hannah's very, very lovely gal, but you know, obviously she's not Grace Kelly. But that's an unfair like, like pedestal to rise to uh, i mean there really shouldn't be a pedestal period right. but then nevertheless you know there is a clear difference and it's only an hour and 27 minutes i've only seen clips of this i just wanted to mention it because it is it is there in the ether and honestly full disclosure i've never seen it and i didn't know when it came out so i wasn't sure if christopher reeve had been injured at this point or not so yeah. it, it's <laughs> only got a 5.6 out of 10 on imdb so some people like it i mean maybe i'll watch it and do a follow-up and just be like hey this is uh <laughs> this is this is garbage. <laughs> I I would be very interested to see what they do, like what kind of approach they take. If it's similar to the Hitchcock version of only from the perspective of that window, do they, you know, move around and show us more? That do they try to Hollywood it up with too much action? Like, I wonder how like how much of it it cuts out from the original and how much it changes because like it, it mainly says like it's it seems like it's going off more of the short story. Like, and the character names are changed, so he's not L.B. Jeffries. He's Jason Kemp, and Daryl uh, Hannah's Claudia Henderson, and uh, Robert Forster, Detective Charlie Moore. So there's, there's, there's a, uh, and he's a paralyzed architect in this movie. He's not a photographer. Okay, so that's um, yeah, that changes quite a bit. So there's there's already some uh, like differences going on. It'd be interesting to see it, no doubt, for sure. Uh, but probably the most prevalent ripoff homage recreation is disturbia from 2007 uh if you haven't seen disturbia it's basically rear window except uh shia labeouf is jimmy stewart which already we're running into a fun little comparison game i think shia labeouf is a good actor i think he's had some personal problems and i'm glad to see he's coming out of them as a recently um but uh uh 
he does have a Jimmy Stewart vibe to him. And the reason I say that is because in Transformers, he's bumbling in, throughout that movie, too, at the direction of Michael Bay. <laughs> so I'm just like, I guess when he's stuttering in Transformers, it's very much Jimmy Stewart-esque. Um, but, uh, no, Disturbia is basically he's a teen under house arrest, and then he starts seeing his new neighbor across the way maybe committing murders and stuff like that. And, yeah. And there's some parallels, like the um, – I would say parallels <laughs> and, and combinations. So you have, like, Miss Torso in Rear Window – and then he's got a neighbor who's around his age that he sees in the pool and stuff. So he starts to watch her a little bit more. But then she is also kind of Grace Kelly's character because then she and she and he have a friendship. And yeah, she's a bit of a dual uh, persona in that one. And, and the and this is uh, you know this is a film that is very proficiently shot for the two thousands uh, in terms of just the visual acumen is very much of a modern aesthetic. It does it does not like sit with imagery a lot it is very fast cut fast paced for what it can be in a rear window remake of sorts um but it does have a it breaks a couple of important rules of being a rear window-esque story which is that it does leave the room yes. uh, it does leave the room that shia labeouf is in so in essence, it's basically if Rear Window was an action movie, this is how you do it. Where predominantly it is in the room, or at least from the house limit. Right. But it does go outside of it, which to me breaks a little bit of the tension a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And and I feel like in Disturbia, there's never a doubt in the audience's mind that the neighbor killed the woman. Like, it we- yeah, it also works off the assumption, the proper assumption that the neighbor is probably guilty. Like, because rarely do you see a film where the assumption is never correct. Right, and and that's where I think it, you know, in Rear Window, I think does a good job of you thinking he might be wrong. But yeah. with Disturbia, the cops are so dismissive when he does call them and everything's written off, so quickly that you just like you know he's right about it because you don't get that doubt that you get in rear window that maybe he's obsessing over the wrong thing um it's very aware that we already know of these tropes when i think that's a mistake because i think you do need to sow that so so more doubt into it there's not enough doubt in shia labeouf's end exactly and i think too to your to what we said with um rear window about really being about um you know James Stewart's hesitancy to marry Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in Disturbia. It's liter- literally just my neighbor killed somebody and nobody believes me and I have to prove it. Yeah, there is no there is no dynamic that is the actual story and the murder should be the background. They they basically do the opposite of what you should have done. That being said, though, Disturbia is a decent film or decent ish. I don't I haven't rewatched it in a while. The last time I rewatched it was maybe two years ago and it was literally to compare it to rear window yeah, um, I, I think the last time i watched it was around when it came out like i saw it in the theater and then so I, did I, yeah. I saw it after when it came out on you know dvd or whatever again uh, but that was really the last time i've watched it yeah and, and again it's a film that you know is it's it's a pot boiler of like the just before the summer came out at the time which i mean uh, guys listening in the future the summer used to be the time when the big box office movies would come out now they come out whenever they want because yeah. the schedule doesn't fucking matter right um uh uh the uh uh the film you know did very well though uh it wasn't critically well received it was like it wasn't panned but it wasn't like praised either it was very much middle ground like 
Roger Ebert said flat out, like, it's just rear window for children. It's <laughs> just like, <laughs> rear window for children. Like, awesome. rear, yeah, so it's like, I mean, I read his full review. I'm not doing it justice. Uh, but there was a lawsuit for this film by the estate of uh, Cornell Woolrich, the author of It Had to Be Murder, which immediately brought up the fact that Rear Window is adapted from that legitimately. And uh, I think Spielberg is open that he basically takes the story of Rear Window because he was the producer of the film and kind of basically, you know, throws the concept out to the director. It's part of what, like, his production company does. But, like, Spielberg's enough of a fan and a devotee devotee of film that I don't think he's intentionally going in, going, like, we're going to remake Rear Window without clearing the rights. Right, um, and it did. They uh, nothing came of that case, right? I don't think they had no, to pay they, anything. The judge, or... just, the judge threw it out immediately, almost immediately. Yeah. There was, there's no grounds for it because the general, it, it, it's too broad uh, of a similarity in concept to be too specific for the lawsuit that they were suggesting. Right, exactly, and that's. I think it was, you know, again, it's a very, it's a different movie. I think while it's very similar to Rear Window. If you were, you know, in a closed system where you were unaware of the existence of Rear Window, I could still see someone making a movie like Disturbia Mm -hmm. without having that reference to pull from. You know, that being said, it would probably be a little bit different, but they're they're similar enough and different enough that I think they can exist as two separate works. Right. And it it brings up the concept of, you know, plagiarism and... You know, like, I mean, Tarantino gets thrown shade a lot for ripping off other things, but, you know, there there's a level of homage to it. And, I mean, I would never say Disturbia is, like, a fine homage, but Disturbia doesn't, I don't, I think Disturbia borders on plagiarism, but doesn't quite tap into it, so it's able to get away with it. But I don't, I think there's enough of it that's different that immediately throws that kind of a case out the window doesn't mean i don't think they should kind of credit it and then say to people like hey if you really like this film check out the original source it's way better it's, it should all just be publicity um uh but then the final uh i think probably the greatest homage uh to to rear window that we ever got was simpsons episode uh one of season six bart of darkness uh if you don't know the story the simpsons get a pool Bart breaks his leg when jumping from a high distance off the pool because he thinks his epidermis is showing, which uh, Nelson quickly explains that your epidermis is your skin. So technically he's right. Hold on. Ha ha. Uh, Bart gets put in a cast and has to spend the rest of the summer in his room. Uh, Lisa gives him a telescope to pass the time. And he looks across the street and see that Flanders uh, looks like he killed somebody and is burying something in the backyard tells his kids that mommy went to God, is with God now. And so it basically turns into rear window in the third act of the episode to the point where in one of the windows, Bart looks in, it's just Jimmy Stewart from rear window going, grace, get over here. There's some kid I want you to see. <laughs> <laughs> and then the favorite, my favorite part of that, when he thinks Flanders is going to kill Lisa. So he goes across the street it cuts back to Jimmy Stewart looking at Bart going like, oh, no, that signature kid's coming to kill me. Help, <laughs> help. And then he just falls back in his wheelchair. <laughs> um, a Simpsons episode that I think does a lot of justice to Rear Window in terms of like, it actually, Alf Clausen's music is very, very Hitchcockian. And it is not Rear Window specific, obviously, because it's not a jazzy score, but it is a Hitchcockian kind of feel to it. It's interesting how... That show does a lot of homages that are very spot on. It's 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 similar to how the only really great Casablanca um, 
parody is Carrot Blanca from the Looney Tunes. <laughs> um, so that's basically the direct homages and whatnot. Um, There's obviously a lot of indirect um, like homages or techniques pulled from that and yeah. used in other films, but anything voyeuristic has a rear window quality to it nowadays. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and now we're gonna go into my, one of my favorite parts of the show, uh, being that we've only done this twice. Um, it's the Hitchcock cameo corner. So Hitchcock makes a cameo in nearly every one of his films. Um, I thought it was all, but I guess there, but there are ones where he's not in them, um, or at least physically. Uh, Rope has an interesting cameo that's not a cameo, mm-hmm. um, but the cameo in Rear Window is. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, is repairing a clock inside the musician's studio apartment. It's around the 24, 25 minute mark. If anyone wants to check it out. Yeah. You can look at it and he just looks at the clock, looks at Ross Bagdasarian and kind of, you know, does this thing. Now we mentioned last uh, episode that uh, the Hitchcock cameo of him missing the bus in North by Northwest, he was able to get another bus, go to, go to the airport go to Paris where then he got on a local bus where he ran into John Roby from to catch a thief. And then my assumption is he went back on, um, uh, on a plane via the airport that is in Topaz. Uh, that's a new element to this, uh, gets back. Um, and he, uh, goes back to, uh, one of his many hobbies, which is just repairing clocks of friends. So he goes to his friend who's a songwriter and he prepares his clock and he sees that his friend Ross Bagdasarian is having trouble and he's just like, why don't you take that song you're doing and just speed up the sound? And then hence Alfred Hitchcock inspired Ross Bagdasarian to create the chipmunks. So Hitchcock is responsible for that abomination. Oh man. (laughs) My respect is declining suddenly (laughs) for this man. So if you, if you, were fans of Alvin and the Chipmunks road trip. Do you have Hitchcock to thank for that? <laughs> I, uh, uh, I'm curious to see where the, uh, strangers on a train cameo plays into this. Oh, Oh, I, I, we, I'm going to have to have you back on because, <laughs> <laughs> well, like well, our assumption also was from last episode is that, um, amongst the things he does when he comes back to America, um, he does go to one of his local favorite shops and tries on a cowboy hat and sits outside the real estate office um, that uh, Janet Lee works in in Psycho. And then the next day he goes out walking with his dogs, goes into a bird shop, and then walks out with his dogs and Tippy Hedren walks by him from the birds. So, you know, it's a Hitchcock cinematic universe. He's a magical imp that runs throughout the entire damn facilities, man. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the Hitchcock cameo corner. I think it's fun to assume that Hitchcock is responsible for four very weird movies that Jason Lee is in (laughs) (laughs) and David Cross. Yeah. Sorry, Mr. Cross. Um, well, let's wrap it up a little bit with some final thoughts on Hitchcock and attention to detail, but also how this pertains to modern filmmaking. Um, Obviously, Hitchcock influences filmmakers throughout the generations at this point to now its inherent cinematic language. Um, who do you think you see uh, doing the most with Hitchcock from today that isn't Brian De Palma? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I wish I had some lead time on this one. I, <laughs> I really don't know. I really just what I what I noticed when you initially mentioned this podcast and having me on, I, I did like a Hitchcock marathon one day and I just watched a ton of his movies and was just noticing lots of little things that 
you see in movies all the time now and you wonder would we see any of these if Hitchcock hadn't done this stuff first so things like the wrongfully accused man or the um, mistaken identity or um, again the you know cops uh, not trusting yeah or dismissing the accusations of a, from people yeah the distrust of authority uh, yeah. so much of that you just see in movies all the time yeah and and it can all go back to Hitchcock so yeah. I, I don't know it's hard to pinpoint a specific director that or filmmaker or anyone that that I see it from but I just see it in a lot of places I, I i tend to think spielberg does more than he's given credit for visually um, homaging him i don't think he does it directly i think there's 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 obviously differences in it but um there's there's a lot to kind of look into there i mean i i i do genuinely think that there's a a, a tendency to point to all voyeurism films and whatnot but like i think that there's I think they might be pulling from other ones like Peeping Tom too, and to a degree Psycho. But like I think Rear Window specifically, I think gets homaged a lot with the uh, "Do you trust your neighbor?" Uh, genre of things that gets floated about in various different fashions and forms. Yeah, definitely. I, I think yeah, to some extent there is that um, that element in in a lot of movies of distrust of neighbors or uncertainty about neighbors, and then where that leads you i i mean yeah, yeah. i've you can see that and even like gosh i'm blanking now we watched some it's terrible movie from the 90s but there was a, the whole like i think my neighbor murdered his wife thing and then the wife shows back up and then yeah it turns out there's a whole nother murderer and it's like you know all of that yeah is clearly from hitchcock's canon yeah and there's also the it's not even a thing that is directly brought into today, but it's something we miss in Hitchcock that we don't get anymore, which is use of sets on, on the spot sets. I mean, it, it's not, if you're on location, it's one thing, but if you are shooting an action film or a comic book film or um, a sci-fi film nowadays, you, you do not get a tangible world that much anymore. You get a lot of blue screen and CGI and mocap. And so there's nothing tactile to, to deal with, but hit, Rear window is literally an entire world built inside a soundstage to the point where they knock down the floor to a to a lower level just to accommodate it. And what's so great about that, I think, from a like looking at it from a modern perspective, is that with that, so much of like the design of the set was based on the story they were trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And yes, now it's all blue screen, it's all locations, and so you're making your story fit the space that you're shooting in as opposed to creating a space around the story you want to tell. Right. And I think there's something very, uh, there's a clear difference to that when you really get into it. Right. Which is something that, you know, we I'd like to see put into practice a lot more. Right. Um, uh, Because I think it is easier to think that something will work just on the surface level and not digging into its roots a little bit. Because again, this movie is about James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. Right. <laughs> it's not about murder. And you know, like they I mean the uh, theoretical, there was actually, there's a, there's a notice um, in the behind the scenes that there was going to be one scene outside of his apartment. Oh, there was going to be one scene. Uh, Herbert Coleman, his uh, assistant director, uh, saw it and suggested that they don't do it, but Hitchcock told them to prep for it anyway. When they finally got around to the point where they were about to film that Hitchcock turned to him and said, Herbie, do you think this is still a good idea? And, or is it still a bad idea? And he goes, yeah, I think it's a bad idea. And 
you know, I don't have the exact transcript, but I believe Hitchcock said, well, then fuck it. <laughs> he probably said that, yeah. Oh, God. I, I hope he did. I want to think that Hitchcock said fuck a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to point out, I one of my favorite things in Rear Window, and we didn't talk about it, and I just remembered, mm. is um, at the near the end when Grace Kelly's in the apartment and she's... Um, the suspected murderer is coming back and she runs into the bedroom yeah. and it pans over and then he walks in and you see the reflection of him walking in, in one of the windows, yeah. one of the rear windows of the apartment that's open. Yeah. Um, I just love that shot yeah. because it's, you know, there's uh, he uses reflections a couple of times in rear window, yeah. but that is just such a cool moment of, you know, he's focused on, where grace kelly is and he by by that i mean james stewart's focused on where she's going and hiding but we can still see that he's entered the apartment and it builds that tension because we see the reflection but we're not sure that james stewart's seen it because it doesn't pan over because hitchcock Um, does provide visual guide even though he doesn't want to he's not gonna he doesn't spoon feed you per se but he does kind of like lay in foundation for you to see stuff but he does keep the the focus centralized right and it was really cool because i i feel like i noticed it and I didn't know why my eyes were looking right where they should have been to notice that reflection, but I, I see it every time Yeah, and I'm not looking for it. Usually it's just one of those, your eyes end up there. Uh, but I did like that. That element is, it's just a small detail again, like we've been talking about yeah. today, but it's a really cool moment. I think having that capturing that in that, uh, that scene. Yep. Well, thank you, Aaron, for coming on and chatting with us a little bit about Hitchcock rear window and the meticulousness of the man. Do you have anything to plug before you go or uh, anything uh, you want to talk about? I really don't. Yeah, I got I got nothing going on right now. Nothing, <laughs> nothing I can talk about anyway. Oh, so that's point. why you came on. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do have a project in the works, but it's still very much uh, a hush hush thing until we're we're rolling on it. Well, so. well, hopefully when I have you back on for Strangers on a Train, we will <laughs> we'll be able to chat more about it. Hopefully by then we will. Yes. Well, good news is you 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 struck oil in this series because you are you are the first guest to discuss one of the Hitchcock Five, and hopefully we can tackle all of them in the series at some point. Um, so uh, thank you all for listening to the Shamley Silhouette. Um, you could find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio via the Real Nerds Podcast feed. Uh, the articles are coming out twice a month along with the podcast episodes. First two articles are up. They're the introduction and chapter one, uh, Fanciful Notions, which is all about Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, article two, we'll probably discuss what we discussed uh, today here, uh, which is the rear window and the small meticulous nature of Alfred Hitchcock's uh, films. Uh, and uh, we will uh, try to be able to kind of... Th- I have a thought to try to make it a little more regular than twice a week, but it doesn't look likely, but we'll see what will happen uh, on the next episode. Hopefully we will be talking to a man that I haven't uh, uh, talked to about Hitchcock in a while. Um, but the, the, the guest we'll, we have uh, will probably be talking about one of my favorite Hitchcock films of all time. Um, it may not be that again, it all depends on the scheduling. So, uh, thank you, Aaron, once again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. This has been the Shamley Silhouette. Until next time, good night.
Sinister-looking kid is coming to kill me. Help! 